0: Welcome to the Baylor Line podcast. I'm your host, Craig Cunningham. Our guest today is Tony Peterson. Tony's a decorated journalist who has held several distinguished roles in his career, including being the senior vice president and executive editor of the Houston Chronicle, where he spent 29 years. He's a longtime activist in First Amendment issues and international press freedom issues, especially in Latin America. Tony is currently a professor in the Bellow Foundation endowed distinguished chair in journalism in the Meadows School of the Arts at SMU. Here's my conversation with Tony Peterson. Tony, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. All right, so start off and just tell us what initially drew you to journalism?
1: What was it about it that made you wanna pursue that? Well, when I was in high school, the Vietnam War was, was uh, really uh, one of the key issues of the day. Uh, and it was political, it was military, um, and involved, of course, a major military commitment on the part of the United States. And so I became uh, active uh, in the anti-war movement. And really, one of the first things that I ever published uh, dealt with a discussion of um, whether uh, 18-year-olds should have the right to vote. And my the headline was something like, old enough to fight, old enough to vote. Uh, that was the issue of the day. Of course, it's since changed. but. Um, I was uh, drawn to uh, journalism because of uh, storytelling and because of the importance of journalism uh, at the time, especially newspapers. Uh, and I fell in love with newspapers and never got over it.
0: Hmm. We've had such a decorated career. So, so going back to your days at Baylor, what do you think it was about the journalism school there that set you up for success?
1: Well, I think it was a very personal uh, commitment that faculty made to students. Uh, and I think it uh, historically has been the strength of Baylor and still is. Uh, the uh, faculty are great uh, at the levels of expertise they bring to the classroom but also great at mentoring uh, and I was mentored by several of the journalism faculty, primarily David McCam who's clearly been recognized as, uh, as one of the great journalism teachers in this country uh, now retired but uh, what David did to uh, me and so many students was to set a vision beyond what we would have done for ourselves. And he convinced us that journalism was important and that journalism could change things. And that above all else is what we learned from David.
0: You've also talked a lot about Dave Campbell. Uh, Why was he so important in your life and what what did you learn from him?
1: Well, what I learned uh, from Dave Campbell uh, was the uh, value of Uh, Journalism at its best. Speed and accuracy. And it was just remarkable the way he could dissect a college football game. And there was nobody in the country who could do it any better. Uh, And he would do it uh, with, again, a very fine focus on detail but also accuracy. Uh, Just the emphasis uh, on getting it right. Uh, stuck with me always and Dave taught that to all of us on that uh, on that news staff uh, and he was respected uh, all across the state because of that uh, and also just the integrity uh, that he used in dealing with uh, people that he covered uh, not just Baylor but really all over the old Southwest Conference uh, in those days uh, Dave was known and respected uh, every coach in the conference would uh, pick up the phone and talk to him and taught me a lot about relationships, but also it taught me a lot about ethics in terms of how you deal with sources and how you deal with people you're covering. And Dave Campbell did it better than anybody I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, one
0: thing that, that sticks out when you read your bio or look at your body of work is, is your commitment to free speech issues and freedom of the press. Um, you've done some work in Latin America. How did you get involved in that and, and why were you drawn to, to, to those issues?
1: Well, I first went to Mexico um, in the uh, 70s, um, and I will never forget this. I went to Mexico City for the first time and absolutely fell in love with the culture and the art uh, and really the people in Mexico. And then later I had a chance to get involved with the Inter-American Press Association uh, as managing editor of the Chronicle. I first did that back in the 1980s and had a chance to begin traveling a little bit in Latin America um, I had studied uh, the language uh, in, uh, actually in high school I took Spanish, but I took two years of Latin at Baylor and then went back and started studying Spanish intensively, uh, and Latin was a great help for that. Uh, and so uh, you really learn a lot about the culture when you learn language. Uh, and then over the years I had a chance to travel to virtually uh, every country in Latin America. Uh, And it is a a real passion of mine to this day, uh, because free speech uh, really had a a wonderful expansion in the 80s and 90s in Latin America and now seems to be uh, retrenching uh, in several key countries, uh, unfortunately Venezuela among them. But uh, it was Mexico, first off, that, uh, that stimulated my love of Latin America. Uh, the um, the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City, one of the great museums in the world. Uh, I still go there when I when I'm in Mexico City and have an afternoon. Uh, just a great, great experience for me and uh, for a for a kid who grew up in Belle Meade. Uh, it was a it was an eye opening experience.
0: So the last the last few administrations in the U S. have had their own issues with with the press. Um, what trends are you seeing with with free speech and freedom of the press here that uh, maybe are worrisome to you, or or are encouraging to you.
1: Well, I I think there's the uh, obviously the current administration uh, calling the the journalist uh, the enemies of the people. Uh, I think it's a very populous line. I think it uh, proves to be very popular with a lot of people. Again, just taking advantage of the uh, animosity that exists uh, toward uh, journalists and toward the news media. Uh, news media are. Uh, unfortunately, at the bottom of the list of institutional confidence. uh, We see that uh, in survey after survey. Um, I I like to tell students and whoever will listen, really, that it could be uh, transitory uh, because things do change. Back in the 60s, when we had the Vietnam War, uh, the United States military was at the bottom of the list of institutional confidence and the news media was at the top. Walter mm-hmm. Cronkite consistently was one of the most trusted people in America. And now that's reversed. Uh, it could be uh, could be changed again. Uh, news media have a lot of work to do to restore integrity. Uh, there is a bias uh, in media that, uh, that I find very uh, disagreeable. Uh, it's all about audience now. It's not about integrity. It's not about storytelling uh, for the public good. It really is about trying to get some kind of a of an audience that sustains uh, who you are as an institution. And that's not journalism to me, but that's where we are.
0: So what, what do you think are some ways that that confidence could be restored?
1: Well, I think first of all, we have to convince people that honest, unbiased storytelling still has value. Uh, and I think people, uh, the public just doesn't understand that now uh, because everybody does want the echo chamber. Uh, It's interesting that surveys tell us that people still want unbiased news. They want storytelling down the middle, but they don't consume it. Hmm. Uh, People uh, who are progressives consume the media on the left. People who are conservatives consume the media on the right. Uh, You really hear what you want to hear. And there's there's a huge danger in that. And the danger is that people won't and don't really believe a true story that doesn't comport with their beliefs. Uh, and there will be some things come up, I fear, in the future when people really do need to believe some things that they don't want to hear. And if they don't believe it, they won't act uh, in the right way to preserve democracy. And at the end of the day, uh, it's all about self governance, it's all about democracy. Uh, and if we don't do everything we can to preserve self governance, we really will be in trouble.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one thing we were talking about <clears> on the web here was uh, the business model for. For news and for newspapers and kind of the local news sort of eroding and crumbling. Um, what, are, what, what is going to be the future of the business model of news?
1: Well I think we've got to be creative about it and uh, we're actually discussing uh, some things here in Dallas uh, dealing with uh, the Dallas Morning News uh, that we might do. Uh, we might involve our students, we might involve uh, some kind of a news lab uh, that we can get funding for that, that will help stimulate uh, coverage of local news because that uh, it, it's, a, it's a significant problem. We simply have far fewer reporters and editors covering the news uh, than we did 20 years ago. Uh, that's on the national level, it's on the state level, and it's on the local level. Uh, really my I have a huge fear uh, at the state level because uh, we used to cover, the news media used to cover a lot of uh, agencies within the state government. And those, unfortunately, for the most part, uh, go without much media oversight now. and uh, there, there are some uh, funding models that are out there uh, dealing with uh, uh, dealing with foundation and private support uh, for digital news organizations, and I find those encouraging. Uh, and I think those need to be fostered, uh, and I think the discussion needs to continue uh, as to how we get back to covering local news and We'll find a way.
0: Yeah, the, you know, the, obviously, you're not selling a newspaper anymore. It, the model was easy. You're buying something that shows up every day. Um, one thing I've thought about is, is if there is a reporter, a local reporter, finding people who, who care enough to basically fund them on an individual level. And, you know, I'm sure that's one model, but there's, you know, we, losing local news is sort of a scary proposition, but it seems to be happening more and more.
1: Well, it does. Um, And again, uh, so many, I I always hate to be, seem like I'm being critical of uh, young people, particularly college students, uh, because they really are so bright uh, and so eager to learn. But at the same time, uh, the college students we teach right now have never read a newspaper. They have never sat down with a newspaper and read it uh, in print form. They have never sat down and watched a 30-minute broadcast newscast that's quality, either at the local or the state level. That's just not how they consume news. And so the really difficult thing is that they don't understand what news is. Uh, All of the news that they consume is curated by some uh, organization or some other website and so they have a very narrow focus. The idea of news is that it's disruptive regardless of where it comes from and what it is and students don't have that awareness and it's probably going to be difficult to convince them uh, that uh, that type of news sourcing is uh, valuable and is necessary. Uh, but we, we haven't given up. Um, and, uh, and things will continue to evolve uh, and things will continue to change in a way that I think ultimately will be positive. We are going through a transitory moment right now where we really are dealing with digital technology. Uh, and I think it gets uh, shaken out, uh, but we're not there yet. you
0: work with students all the time Uh, what what's encouraging about the future of journalism and and journalists
1: well what's encouraging to me is just the the attitude that they have Uh, they really do have an attitude of openness Uh, they're aware of so many things that i was not when i was in college Uh, and there's a there's a commitment to do the right thing and to do public good they don't know how to channel it but there really is an amazing commitment on the part of the millennials for public good uh, and to change things in a positive way. And that, above all else, is what I find encouraging.
0: Baylor uh, recently has had a few incidents where speakers have been on campus and there's kind of been uproar on both sides (laughs) about this idea of free speech. Um, How do you think that's going to play out at Baylor, this idea of free speech and and kind of who can speak and who's not allowed to speak? What's your take on that?
1: Well, uh, I, it's difficult to predict uh, anything uh, about uh, how that will turn out in the future. I can only say that, from my standpoint, any speaker ought to be welcome on a university campus so long as the discourse is civil, uh, and there's not any incitement to violence. Really, any issue should be discussed. Um, you know we've had this address. John Stuart Mill addressed this uh, back in the middle of the 19th century. Yes, you should listen to falsehood because there could be a kernel of truth in it. And the other reason you should listen to falsehood is that it helps to reinforce what you do hold to be truth. If you only have some limits on speech and you only have one version of what you perceive to be the truth, it becomes stale. You have to reinforce what you believe in and what is the right thing and what is the public good. And ultimately, uh, in the Enlightenment sense, what is truth by listening to all sides.
0: It, get, it just gets more complicated being a private Christian university. Uh, how, does, how does that impact uh, the debate?
1: Well, it uh, does, because uh, obviously uh, free speech is a part of the First Amendment, but so is the freedom of religion. Uh, and it's a powerful right. And really, it was at the heart of the intent of the First Amendment. The Establishment Clause has been, and should continue to be, uh, such an integral part of how we view freedom of expression uh... it is difficult because people can limit certain points of view for religious reasons if they believe it to be a matter of religious doctrine uh... so there are competing rights and Baylor as an institution uh... will sort those out in the future it's been a part of the university there have been free speech controversies on the university campus for decades uh... and there probably will be for decades uh... but really when you look uh, at uh where Baylor has been and where Baylor is going, uh I think there is a commitment uh based on based on religious principles that will see the university through uh, and certainly becoming a a Christian research university, which is the goal of Baylor uh is absolutely admirable. It will take a lot of time and it will take a lot of uh, resources to sort out
0: yeah um yes, it will. Uh, going back to students, um, are, what are their concerns leaving with a, a degree in journalism? are they are they optimistic or is, what are what are some of their fears about entering a career that feels a little up in the air right now?
1: Well, I think the important thing is that journalism is not what it was even twenty years ago, certainly even ten years ago. Uh, what we teach here are tools in social media, uh, how to write for social media, but also how to uh, use social media in a strategic sense uh, and how to develop uh, uh, skills that can be monetized. Uh, and really, I think, uh, one of the problems of the digital age so far is that so, much, so many people in the media have just kind of thrown up their hands and said, oh gosh, we just can't make money on this. We can't monetize it. There are ways that you monetize it. There are ways you monetize podcasts. There are ways that you can monetize uh, opinion material over a wide range of uh, subject matters, uh, politics, sports. Uh, There are ways you monetize that, uh, and people uh, can succeed in that. And so I think uh, part of what uh, we need to get back to is a certain entrepreneurial spirit. I think we've done that pretty well here at SMU. Uh, I think Baylor uh, tends to do a pretty good job of that also. Uh, So uh, I, I still tell students you know, I I have been extremely lucky. I've had two jobs uh, in uh, more than 40 years. I love coming to work every day of my life. I love the newspaper business. I love teaching. And I tell students, find out what your passion is and then figure a way to make a living at it. And then you'll never work a day in your life that you don't want to.
0: We talked a little bit about this a minute ago, but but do you ever look back on the newspaper days and wish you could go back and do that or, or do you, you enjoy this this part of your career better?
1: Well, I enjoy this part of my career. Uh, I, I really, I love the newspaper business. Uh, I love the newspaper business the way it used to be when we were making uh, a lot of money and we could spend money uh, on covering material. Uh, I really don't uh, think that exists right now. There's so much emphasis on budget. There's so much emphasis uh, on uh, ways that you can cut costs and make money, uh, and I think it's a real problem. Uh, but uh, I love the newspaper business the way it was, and I love teaching right now the way it is.
0: All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much for for doing this with us today. You're welcome. That was Tony Peterson. To learn more about the Baylor Line Foundation, visit us at baylorlinefoundation.com. We'll see you next time.